Living Hero, Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. The following program presents the opinion of its participants and producer. It does not reflect an official opinion of WGDR or its licensee, Goddard College. Good morning, and welcome to The Living Hero Show. I'm your host and producer, Jari Chevalier. Today's show will feature music from the soundtrack Until the End of the World, and a few pieces from Bobby McFerrin's Beyond Words, and music from the trio Archie Pelago. Today we're going to segue into our first look together at the shaping of the human psyche through childhood experiences. We're going to hear a few stories from Aaron Gandhi, He's the fifth grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, and he's talking about the child-raising practices of his grandfather. We're also going to hear from child development expert Marcy Axness, author of Parenting for Peace. First, here's Arun Gandhi. There was a very interesting episode uh, and a very interesting lesson that I learned from grandfather uh, through a little pencil. Now, you may wonder what a little pencil has to do with a, uh, a lesson in nonviolence. When I was 12 years old, I was coming back from school, and I had a notebook and a little pencil. It was about three inches long. And I, you know, walking home, uh, I just happened to look at the pencil, and I uh, thought to myself, this is too small for anybody to use. Um, and so without a second thought, I just threw that pencil away because I was so sure that grandfather would give me a new pencil when I asked him for one. <clears throat> but that evening when I met grandfather and asked him for a new pencil, instead of giving me one, he subjected me to a lot of questions. <laughs> he wanted to know how the pencil became small and where did I throw it away and why did I throw it away and on and on and on. And I couldn't understand why he was making such a fuss over a little pencil until he told me to go out and look for it. And I said, you must be joking. He said, you don't expect me to look for a little pencil in the dark? It's already getting dark outside. And he said, oh, yes, I do. Here's a flashlight. And he sent me out with a flashlight to look for this pencil, and I must have spent about uh, two hours searching for it. And when I finally found it and brought it to him, he said, Now I want you to sit here and learn two very important lessons. The first lesson is that even in the making of a simple thing like a pencil, we use a lot of the world's natural resources. And when we throw them away, we are throwing away the world's natural resources, and that is violence against nature. And the second lesson is that because in an affluent society we can afford to buy all these things in bulk, we overconsume the resources of the world, and because we overconsume them, we are depriving people elsewhere of these resources, and they have to live in poverty. And that is violence against humanity. And although it, this whole lesson was over that little pencil, it, it wasn't just the pencil that we waste, but, you know, if we look at our lives, if we examine our lives there, how many things we 
uh, over-consume and how many things we waste because we just have so much of it that we don't know what to do with it. And every time we waste anything, every time we uh, uh, throw away things, we are committing violence against nature and violence against humanity. So we have to become conscious of that. We should not over-consume things, we should not become greedy, and, um, you know, we need to think about people elsewhere too. I know we do think about people. We do show compassion uh, at times, and and we give uh, generously to uh, to people all over the world there. But I think it needs to be more. We don't do enough. Uh, we need to uh, become more active and more. Uh, uh, committed to um, bringing about a better life uh, all over the world there. And in our own country, too. Uh, here we have uh, people who live in poverty. We have millions of people who uh, go to bed uh, hungry every night. And so we need to be conscious of all this, and we need to do something about it. And these things we will be able to do only when we uh, bring about that transformation in our uh, attitude and we, um, you know, allow compassion and and concern for other people to uh, dominate our thinking and our relationships uh, with uh, each other, whether it is in this country or whether it is uh, outside this country. Uh, and and we need to think and and you know broaden our perspectives or from his talk, Lessons Learned from My Grandfather, Nonviolence in a Violent World, presented on Fora TV. How we bring up our children. You know, how we instill in our children violent attitudes. We constantly tell them that you're going to be punished if you don't behave. And that's the first message we are telling them, giving them, that if somebody doesn't behave, that person needs to be punished. The first lesson in violence that we teach our children when they are young. So in, in a culture of non-violence, it's not punishment that is meted out, but it's penance that is done by the parents. And the difference between this is something I'll... Uh, share with you. As I said, we grew up uh, in South Africa, and my father and mother were totally dedicated to grandfather's philosophy of nonviolence in their private life as well as their public life. So we were never punished when we misbehaved, and believe me, we did misbehave. We were not very uh, good children there, but... But they they never punished us. They did penance. And that was worse than uh, punishment. Very often I felt that if they had just slapped me or uh, done something and gotten over it, it would be much better. But they would take the... uh, do the penance there. You know, like for instance, in, uh, in a 
situation when I was 14 years, no, 16 years old. Uh, and we had just come back from uh, from India, and we were back in South Africa. And um, it was a Saturday, and my father had to go to a conference uh, in in town. You know, we were living in this ashram that grandfather had started, uh, which was outside the city of Durban. It was about 18 miles outside the city. And, uh, you know, driving those 18 miles in those days over uh, dirt roads and all that uh, was not a very easy task. You know, today we zip along in 18 miles is nothing. But in those days it was quite a task and my father didn't feel like driving that day. So he asked me if I would drive him into town and I jumped at the opportunity because... Uh, you know, being a teenager, who wants to live in that isolation there? I wanted company, I wanted friends, and I wanted to go and see a movie or something. So I saw this as an opportunity, since he was going to be in a conference all day, and I said, it'll give me an opportunity to see a movie or something. So I agreed to drive him, and uh, since I was going into town, my Mom gave me a list of groceries that she needed. And on the way into town, my father reminded me of all the little chores that had been pending for a long time. And he said, since you have the whole day to yourself, will you please attend to all these chores? And I said, all right. And then I dropped him off at the conference venue and he said, uh, at 5 o'clock in the evening... I will wait for you outside this auditorium. Come and pick me up and we'll go home together. I said, okay. And I rushed off and I did all my chores and I bought all the groceries. And um, I was told one of the things, uh, one of the chores I had to do was to uh, get the car serviced, oil changed and all that. So I took the car to the garage and I said... You know, service the car, do everything that you need to do with it, and I'm going to the movies. <laughs> and I went, and I got so engrossed in a John Wayne double feature <laughs> that I didn't realize the passage of time. The movie ended at uh, 5.30. And I ran from there to the garage and got the car and rushed to where my father was waiting for me. It was almost 6 when I reached there one hour late and he was naturally anxious and wondering what happened to me and he was pacing up and down and so the first question he asked me is why are you late and instead of telling him the truth I was so ashamed to tell him that I was sitting there watching a John Wayne double feature that I lied to him and I said the car wasn't ready I had to wait for the car not realizing that he had already called the garage and asked him. (laughs) When he caught me in the lie, he said, there's something wrong in the way I brought you up that didn't give you the confidence to tell me the truth, that you felt you had to lie to me. And I've got to find out where I went wrong with you. And in order to do that, he said, I'm going to walk home 18 miles. I'm not coming with you in the car. He just started walking. It was after 6 o'clock in the evening. It was already beginning to get dark. Much of those 18 miles were through dirt roads, sugarcane fields, no lights. I couldn't leave him and go away. So for five and a half hours, I was crawling behind him in the car, 
Watching him go through that pain and agony for a stupid lie that I uttered and I decided there and then that I was never going to lie again. And that was a very powerful lesson in non-violent parenting. If he had punished me as we would punish our children if they did something wrong, I just I think I would have just suffered the punishment and made sure the next time I don't get caught. But by taking the responsibility on himself and doing penance for a stupidity that I committed, he taught me such a powerful lesson that it'll never uh, leave me. It'll be with me till I die. And that is the power of non-violence. And that is what we need to understand, how we can transform ourselves and transform our relationships with our children and uh, and uh, people, you know, generally people all over. Uh, and that's the power that non-violence makes it possible to do. such uh, lessons uh, that I learned from grandfather but uh, you know, there was a little story uh, that I wanted to share with you also uh, especially after learning about uh, his anger and, and uh, you know the uh, lesson in anger management um, after learning that I uh, wanted to test grandfather and see whether he himself had learned the lesson or not <laughs> And I, uh, you know, this was the time in his life when he was involved in many important things. Uh, India was about to become free. Uh, there were discussions uh, going on uh, for the freedom of the country. Um, India was going to be partitioned into uh, India for Hindus and Pakistan for Muslims which created a lot of bitterness uh, in both communities there, so he was in the midst of that also. But he also was concerned about the education of women and uh, education of children and emancipation of the oppressed people and, and all of these things. And he had programs going on in all these different fields, small programs there. Uh, and, um, you know, he needed funds for those programs because the um, money was all controlled by the British at that time and they were not willing to fund his programs. So he had to raise his own money. And he re realized that the easiest way for him to raise money was by selling his autograph. And so he put a fee of five rupees for each autograph. And every morning and evening when he held his public prayer meetings, when uh, people came in large numbers to attend his prayers, they would all seek his autograph too. 
Uh, and many of them would seek it repeatedly because they just wanted to fund his programs and so they used that as an excuse to give him the money there. But during that period when I was living with him, it was my duty to go out into the audience and collect the autograph books and the money and bring it to him for his signature. And one day I thought to myself, I said, if everybody could get his autograph, why not me? After all, I uh, deserve an autograph too. And so one day I got myself a little autograph book and I slipped it into the pile because I didn't have any money. And uh, when he came to that book, he said, why is there no money for this autograph? And I said, because it's my book. And he said, well, you should know that I don't make an exception even for grandsons. <laughs> that if you want an autograph, you will not only have to pay me for it, but you'll have to earn the money and pay me. Don't ask your parents for it. And I said, no way. <laughs> said, you're my grandfather and I'm going to make you give me this autograph freedom. And he laughed and said, all right, let's see who wins. <laughs> And from that day, every day when he was in high-level political discussions with Indian politicians or British politicians, I would barge into the room with my autograph book and thrust it in his face and demand an autograph. <laughs> my logic was just to, just to get rid of me, he would sign the autograph and give it to me. But instead, every time I became too boisterous, all he did was put his hands across my mouth pressed my head against his chest and went on talking politics. <laughs> I don't remember his ever telling me to get out of the room and leave him alone in anger. Many of the other politicians used to tell him, why don't you give him the autograph and be done with it? <laughs> he comes and disturbs our meetings every day. And grandfather would just smile and say, this is a private joke between the two of us. You don't have to get involved in it. But the long and short of it is that he never did give me the autograph. <laughs> and he never got angry. And that's when I realized that if he was able to control his anger to that extent, if we attempt to achieve 50% of it, we will make a tremendous difference in the level of violence that we experience in our lives today.
There's another story that I want to share with you, and it's also about parenting. You know, he had created these ashrams. I'm sure you know what an ashram means. Uh, it's just a collection of community people who come together to live as one big family. So he had this ashram in India. And um, when we were visiting in 1940, when I was six years old, um, he was living in that kind of community. And there were almost 200-plus people in that community at the time. I was six years old, and there was another young couple in that community who also had a six-year-old boy. But he had a tremendous sweet tooth. I mean, he just could not do without sweets. He had to have candies or chocolates or uh, desserts or something sweet all the time. And if he didn't get anything, he would just take spoonsful of sugar and eat them. And the result was that he started getting a rash all over his body and his parents took him to the doctor. And the doctor said, you have to stop giving him sweets until he's cured and then you have to monitor how much he eats. Then. So the parents came home and typically they told the boy, and said, from tomorrow you're not getting any sweets. The doctor said, no sweets for you. Finish. That's the rule and you're going to obey it. And yet they had sweets on the table and everybody else in the family was partaking of it. And so the boy didn't obey the parents. When nobody was looking, he would grab some and eat it. And the result was that he couldn't be cured. So after a few days, the, uh, these parents brought the boy to grandfather and pleaded with grandfather to speak to him and explained to him why he should not eat sweets. He said, we have tried and he won't listen to us. And grandfather said, you come back after 15 days and I'll speak to him. And of course the parents didn't know why they had to wait for 15 days. Why couldn't he speak to him now? But they couldn't argue with him, so they went away and came back after 15 days and grandfather took this boy aside and spoke to him for less than a minute. And the boy went home and gave up sweets. Wouldn't touch sweets anymore. And the parents were shocked. And they came back to grandfather and said, What kind of a miracle did you perform? And we were trying to tell him the same thing and he wouldn't listen to us. And yet you were able to speak to him for less than a minute. And he instantly obeys you. And grandfather said, It's not a miracle. So the reason I asked you to come back after 15 days was I had to give up eating sweets before I could ask him to give up. And all that I told him was that I have not eaten for 15 days and I'm not going to eat sweets until you are allowed to eat sweets. So will you please give it up? Now that little compassion that parents ought to be showing to their children, we seldom do that. We use our parental authority to make the children do what they have to do, but we are not willing to share with them. And these are things that we need to understand about nonviolence if we want to create true peace in the world. We will never be able to achieve peace if we don't transform ourselves and transform the negativity that exists within us into positive uh, attitudes and positive feelings. 
Arun Gandhi. Now, that is a form of parenting that requires a very developed moral character in the parent. And Mahatma Gandhi certainly devoted his entire life to such self-development. Arun Gandhi, while he is a social activist, an international speaker and worker for social change and social justice, he himself does not practice the level of asceticism that his grandfather did, as very few people are strong enough to do. And yet the urgencies of our world cry out for evolutionary practices. Marcy Axness makes it clear that parenting must be front and center in any successful movement for widespread social wellness. Her book, Parenting for Peace, reveals and exposes all the ways that people are currently damaging youth, inadvertently in many cases, specifically in contemporary Western-style society. It also suggests just how swiftly and comprehensively mothers and fathers who are parenting for peace can revolutionize our world through a conscious, concerted approach by, quote, taking responsibility for how we invite in, welcome, and incarnate our next generation, unquote. This involves the way we carry, birth, and engage with children at every stage of their development. And Marcy Axness also lets us know that it also involves swimming hard against the strong social currents that have deliberately undermined the holistic health of children to make for good workers and consumers to ensure social stability for a corporate state. Dr. Axness's deep, comprehensive, and effective questioning of contemporary medical, educational, and ideological social mores and establishments calls upon parents to turn the tide. Axness acknowledges that parenting for peace is the most important and challenging job of your life. And yet, in many ways, this daunting and demanding task calls upon us merely to be more loving, aware, connected, empathic, easeful, and natural. Axness teaches the specifics of how to take every opportunity to bring physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual security and well-being to a child, and how this is a powerful action in service to the living world. to take a short break. Stay with us and we'll be back with wise words and practical parenting guidelines for peace from Marcy Axness, PhD, and music from Archie Pelago. Welcome back to Living Hero, conversations with living luminaries and mavericks. We are here each week to talk with those local, regional, national, and international artists, researchers, activists, authors, healers, wisdom figures, and heroic individuals of all kinds who are working for the greater good. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I want you to explore and celebrate with me what it means to be a living hero in our times. 
We are drawing the connections between psyche and society, between our innermost experience and the large-scale geopolitical reality we all share. We are looking at what conscientious individuals and groups are doing to take a more holistic view and to usher in more wholesome ways of living and structuring societies. So get the big picture, draw connections, repair neural synapses with interviews, essays, music, spoken word, audio collages, panel discussions, listener participation. This is independently produced, listener-supported radio created in the public interest. like to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Marcy Axness. She is an early development specialist who writes and speaks internationally on parenting, society, and the needs of children. She's an authority in neurobiology, in prenatal and developmental psychology, in attachment theory, and consciousness research. The solution to so many of the problems that are facing us right now it's actually so simple, but it's not easy because so much of our institutional uh, care of mothers and babies is based on separating them and not understanding that nature has imbued us with an elegant system for bringing our children up in, in, in a flourishing way rather than a defended way, in a way in which they can be peacemakers, can bring our world into the next place we need it to be if we are all going to survive. So it requires understanding what's behind so many of the things that we take for granted. Separating mothers and babies when right after birth. Cutting the cord too early. Um, circumcision, which has become routine. People don't even question it. That, that is a huge trauma. Um, putting the baby in its own room down the hall rather than sleeping within that very small radius that constitutes the energetic and physiologic neurologic connection between baby and mother. Plastic carriers, uh, swings, all of these accoutrements that we think are so important that are, that are an unquestioned part of our culture. These are all eroding this primary bond between mother and child that then expands into family and child and then that expands to, to society if we look around and we see people that we feel don't have a connection to society they, they don't have a conscience we have to trace that back to when that bond was first broken, when that connection was first severed without understanding what we were doing it's sometimes strange for people to understand the idea that the mother and the baby are a single biological unit but the latest brain science tells us that even two adults engaged in this conversation, we right now are a single biological unit. Our brains link up. But it's even more concrete, and it's biological, and it's very um, direct between a mother and a baby. For example, most people, many people don't know that the components and the makeup of a mother's breast milk 
changes hour to hour, morning to evening, day to day, based on her baby's needs. If that baby is sick, if that baby is needing extra fat, extra protein, that breast milk changes. How else could that happen? If it weren't for this single biological unit, it's a continuous feedback from mother to baby and from baby to mother. The connection that Dr. Axness is speaking of extends to the connection we naturally have and naturally need to maintain with the Earth, sometimes referred to as Mother Earth. Dr. Axness is part of a growing cohort of scientists and social scientists calling for evolutionary change through whole systems analysis and improvement. I got the chance to interview Marcy Axness back in 2008, and I'd like to play for you from that interview now. How do we raise someone who can change the world? And I know that there's this really deep question that's living very strongly in the hearts of young people today. And so over the last months in talking to young people and writing about this, I've really sort of coalesced um, to a question, almost a challenge for, for young people that if if you're deeply concerned about today's world and where it's going and if you feel like something more is needed to heal our social and environmental issues and you wonder is there anything you can do and you don't quite know how to participate in the solution, then my challenge is to take Gandhi up on his famous admonition to be the change you want to see you know, in the world and raise children whose very beings are woven from that change. So be peace, and that is the first step. I believe a peaceful person has a heart, you know, to embrace and exemplify peace. But also equally critical is a person who is oriented towards peace has a mind to innovate and imagine creative solutions, okay, to social and ecological challenges. Yeah. And also lest we forget, the will to enact them. Okay, so all of this adds up to a brain that is wired with the capacity for self-regulation, for self-reflection, for trust, for empathy. And that person is never a genetically predetermined given, but always only a result of really dynamic interactions between genetics and environment and these interactions begin long before a child is even born. We have these wonderful programs all over to teach children about peace, to teach them about nonviolence, conflict resolution. I am not denying the importance of education used in appropriate ways, but what has been wildly overlooked is that the brain development that is associated with these essential characteristics of health that I just described as being peaceful, these are formed long before children ever set foot in school. Some of the most important neurological foundations for this level of health are formed during the prenatal period. And certain aspects of optimal development are fundamentally influenced as early as conception with a really powerful environmental variable being the parent's own thoughts feelings and actions, which I kind of lump together under the banner of consciousness. Okay, I want to ask you where 
you see us able to break the chicken egg cycle uh, in a sense where you have people jumping into parenting before they themselves have these aptitudes for self-soothing, self-reflection, and all the things that you just went through, and then they're giving rise to a next generation of people who are, again, stressed and feeling unsafe. What specifically do you have people doing to make these fundamental changes in their own circuitry and set them up to do a better job with the next generation. Right. Now, like you pointed out, it is so much better if people can come to these ideas before they're starting a family. In terms of practical things, I do have these seven principles. Um, they go from presence to simplicity, and they follow an alphabetical mnemonic. They spell out parents so people can. it helps people remember what they are. So the first principle is Presence. I mean, this is the greatest gift we can give to a child, for sure, is just the ability to be available in this moment right now with nothing else on our minds. Well, this really comes down to discipline. Anybody who's on a spiritual path who practices meditation realizes that that is what meditation is about. It is about being able to be present to this moment. You know, and one of the biggest issues in parenting is discipline. But all discipline comes down to self-discipline. And, you know, the ultimate foundational aspect of discipline really is the question to ask yourself, do I as the parent have mastery over something as fundamental as the movement of my thoughts? And when the answer is yes, this is picked up on by the child. And there's countless ways to practice presence. Yeah. Uh, when you are cooking, when you're, as my, as my dear friend Ed Brown, the Buddhist priest, says, when you're cutting the carrots, cut the carrots. Don't think about the argument you had with your um, friend earlier that day or the um, shopping trip you're taking tomorrow or whatever. You're cutting the carrots. Taking a shower is one of my favorite ones. I, you know, I think about the places in this world where the idea of a hot shower would be regarded as as a miracle. As Such like, a luxury. Oh, beyond a luxury, they would be like, oh, my gosh. And yet we do it every day, and typically we aren't present to it. We're rehearsing what's coming for the rest of the day, or we're, you know, reliving what went on earlier, or, you know. So, and it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's really the way to practice presence is to continually bring yourself back to the wonderful feelings that a shower is full of, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second principle is awareness. And, and this is the, um, the things that we need to know to be effective in our role, whether it's as a parent or as a human. But certainly as a parent, there are certain pieces of awareness that are important. And the first one really, the most important, is to be aware of our own history, uh, to be able to make sense of our own early history, our own early relationships, what some of those lessons were that we learned, and to have an objective awareness of them. And what that does is it allows us to have a little bit of space in between us as the awareness of that story and the story itself so we aren't quite so identified with our story. That turns out actually research. This is research to be the single strongest predictor of a child's healthy, secure attachment is if that child's parent can tell a coherent, cohesive narrative about their own early 
experience. That's so, so interesting, Marcy. Yeah. So I believe it's Mary Main who did the work with the adult attachment interview. They had this finding that was completely anomalous. They couldn't figure out what, why. And, and this was this finding that more than being sensitive or the techniques of parenting, more so than anything else, this idea of being able to tell a cohesive narrative about one's early childhood turned out to be the strongest predictor of secure attachment in a child. Why would that be? Well, we really haven't fully understood this until in the last 10 years. We've had the ability to go in and look at brains and find out that the, the capacity, the brain-based capacity to do that, to tell to have autobiographical memory, is right in the same area, the orbital frontal cortex, that mediates all these other um, capacities that I described, self-regulation, self-reflection, trust, and empathy. That is all mediated by that orbital frontal cortex. And as a child is growing, what they're doing is they're wiring up uh, their brain circuitry to mirror that of their parents. It's really wild. It's like um, science fiction. It's such an exciting field and time in the field, right? Yes. So, um, so that's that's a really important piece of awareness. But then again, also to have a little understanding of some fundamental child development principles, so that you know one of the biggest mistakes, one of the biggest obstacles that you know that parents stumble over and we as a society actually is that we overestimate we expect way too much from our young young children we really adultify them and we sort of made them into just little small versions of people quote unquote not children but people to give you just one example that i always point out to a parent of a of a toddler when they come to see me is i bring out my little chart on brain development and I help them see that because that child is living in the sensory motor part of their brain, that is the part of their brain that is active, that for us to think about that cup over there, to look at it and have a mental model of it and just think about it, that's the equivalent of the child picking it up, touching it, and maybe even putting it in their mouth. And that helps them go, oh, she's not trying to drive me crazy. She's just doing her version of thinking. <laughs> So the next principle is rhythm, which is really one of the greatest needs of a young child, but it's also a fundamental human principle, which is often forgotten in our techno-automated, sped-up, um, phone, fax, email, cell world, and that is that, you know, we are human beings with biorhythms, and um, that for the young child especially, having a, a strong rhythm is really important. That's routine. That's predictability. One of the first things, if anybody watches the you know Super Nanny or whatever the show is, the first thing she always does is put the family on a schedule, and that's where I think she gets a lot of her results. Emulation worthiness. That's the weirdest of my seven principles because I had to make it fit an E, but it really says what it needs to say. Um, Joseph Chilton Pierce says this. He says, our children cannot be who we tell them to be. They can only be who we are. And this I guess is the word example is, is your E also. That Maybe I'll change that. A question to hold in your mind is, am I worthy of my child's unquestioning imitation at all times? That needs to be the question that a parent of a young child is walking around with because that is how they learn. 
again, um, they don't listen so much to words. It, it's action. It's that doing. It's what they're sensing and, 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 and seeing you do that really teaches them. So one little tip, if we're talking about how do we, if we didn't have the most conscious beginnings, I mean, believe me, I, <laughs> I come from a background where, you know, there wasn't a lot of consciousness about parenting for sure. And, um, Most you know, of us could say the same. You know, we're are, against that. Exactly. There's wonderful little exercises and one that comes out of uh, one particular dimension of esoteric initiatic science is that making as little noise as possible with your utensils as you eat. Because this is something you do every day, two or three or four times a day. And so, you know, any change has got to involve habit because um, our habits are neural pathways. And any change we want to affect has to do with, with carving new neural pathways. And the big exciting discovery of the 90s, of course, was just how much plasticity there is at the level of the brain, how much we can change. So... Um, what this means, what this engages is the fine motor control. And fine motor control of our, of our, of our fingers has, has correlates in the brain that really um, institutes changes in fine neural connections, and it up-levels everything. That's just one little thing, one little practice. Refinement, refinement at the table yes, exactly. turns into refinement in the little fibers of the brain. Absolutely, yeah. The N is nurturance, and nurturance is really just a practical demonstration of love. And, you know, there's just countless ways that we can expand our repertoire of showing our love. And, you know, again, for ourselves and for our children, part of it is understanding that young children really, really need a sense of reverence and awe and beauty. And we've just all but lost that in our society. You know, a little, a little child will, out, standing out with her dad under the night sky, will say, Daddy, look at that star. And, you know, Daddy will respond to this four-year-old by saying, Why, yes, Hannah, and did you know that really what a star is a, is a very dense collection of hotly burning gases and, you know, because it's a quote-unquote teachable moment. We, we have become so enamored with our abilities to think that we have lost the sense that there's a time for that. There is definitely a time for offering children these kinds of um, you know, more factual insights into how things work. But when they're young, they need a sense of awe and a sense of beauty and reverence for for our world and for them and how they work and how we work. So I, I would suggest a more fitting response to that comment, which is to say, oh, yes. And um, I learned a really wonderful response from a colleague of mine, Catherine DeMonte, who, um, you know, when when asked so many questions by the young child. How does this work? How does that work? How do they do that? Blah, blah, blah. You know, in order to respect the young child's uh, need for a bit of awe and mystery, a wonderful handy all-purpose response is, hmm, I wonder. <laughs> yeah. Um, it takes some retraining and some reframing of what's uh, needed. 
the tea is the most subversive one on the list. <laughs> um, it's trust. Everything in our consumerist culture teaches us that we're not quite enough, that something we can purchase will make up for our lack. <laughs> but, you know, it really is a subversive kind of suggestion that we cultivate more trust. To understand, for example, that as parents, you know, we aren't the ultimate parents of our children, that life is, is a collaborator with us. It goes back, you know, uh, Khalil Gibran wrote that beautiful, beautiful piece about um, being parents and how our children are not our children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. And so that as parents, when we are faced with, you know, an unending series of difficult questions and challenges. As we and challenges, we can always turn back, turn to life, and say, "Look, you enlisted me in this collaboration, so I'm I'm trusting that you're going to help me here." And um, you know, this idea of trusting in life and in life's rhythms and in unseen resources is much more something that is found in in more traditional cultures. We've become so techno-savvy. When I have a new rose that's just budding in my garden, I mean, do I go in and tinker with the petals and try to pry them open or do something to optimize its development? No. I enrich the soil. I fertilize the soil, and I trust in the process of, of that rose unfolding itself and the inherent wisdom of that. So, that's a very nice example. So when I'm talking to parents or future parents about some practical ways, one way is maybe you might forego some of those routine ultrasounds. Ultrasound was developed for the problem pregnancies, not for the routine ones. But once doctors had them in their offices, ultrasounds became routine. And now one of my heroes, she's a cultural anthropologist, Robbie Davis Floyd, notes that women now routinely come to see the image on the screen as the baby, <laughs> okay, that little murky blur on the screen becomes somehow more real than any sensation inside her womb or inside her psyche because the dominant reality engine of our time, as one writer puts it, has become the screen. And what has been taking place is this erosion of a mother's and father's own inner knowing and their connectedness to their child, to their, to their inner wisdom, but also, also to their child. Because the ultrasound image then becomes the baby monitor so we can hear the baby cry. It's this undermining of our own inner knowing. And I started with this principle and end with it. It's simplicity. And simplicity can really be a portal to joy. And joy is what really lies at the very foundation of health and well-being and peace. There's a new study that found that just simplifying daily life across four different dimensions dramatically reduced the symptoms of clinically diagnosed ADHD in school-age kids. So if we can cultivate a sense of wonder and imagination, this helps guarantee simplicity because then everything becomes amazing. As a parent, you know, for children, wind through the trees as fairies dancing or a piece of wood becomes anything, a doll, a, a lion, a, um, a spoon can be a, a flag or a king's scepter, and we don't need to constantly purchase things. Wow. Well, I think I'm going to ask the really difficult question here, and I actually don't expect you to be able to 
answer it, but I'd love to talk about it with you. And that is that what you're suggesting sounds very much to me like a shift of worldview, a shift of priorities, uh, to have a world of peace. Of course, all these things would contribute in a big way to that. But can we look at the social and political realities of a shift of worldview? And since you're working in this realm and you're putting forth these wonderful ideals in your book and in your talks, what is it you see that you're really up against and what do you think it would take to turn things around? Well, you're right. It's 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 huge, right? It's huge. It's huge. But I'm going to give you two in terms of what we might see as things that are interfering with peace as a society. Uh, I'll start with two as a way of delimiting it, you know, of sort of making it a manageable conversation or a manageable um, scope of of exploration. Great. Um, One of the most fundamental and serious ways that we interview with the development of a peaceful society is the way we give birth. Childbirth is an incredibly decisive moment in development when critical systems in the brains and the bodies of both the mother and the baby organize in lifelong ways and of most fundamental importance as we're talking about birthing a peaceful generation has to do with the circuitry for oxytocin which is called the hormone of connection some people call it the hormone of love there are biochemical cascades that are triggered during an unimpeded mammalian labor and birth that establish lasting set points for the brain's self-regulating and social functions. But our obstetrical protocols routinely disrupt this process. And then immediately after birth, uh, this really complex hormonal cocktail orchestrates biochemical exchanges between the mother and her newborn, opening never-to-be-repeated opportunity windows for optimal healthy development, again, of these social engagement systems, all organized around the mother and baby's face-to-face togetherness, which we call bonding. Yet again, U.S. hospital protocols typically disrupt and disturb this complex weaving that happens, that should happen in the first hours of life. So we have so many newborns ending up in plastic isolettes receiving what I call a faulty relational imprint, which is I connect with things, not people, which can impair lifelong the capacity for healthy human rapport, social intelligence, and these foundations of peace that we've been talking about. Now, popular culture relentlessly cultivates our fear of birth, and it entrances us with the promise of salvation through technology, and yet... Our U.S. infant mortality rate is one of the highest in the developed world, and American women are dying from childbirth at the highest rate in decades. We're coming up to a break. Stay with us for the last piece of this interview with Dr. Marcy Axness, some commentary, and some great music. See you after these important messages.
The rest of today's show features the music of Archipelago. capacities 
that are developed through healthy attachment that I was talking about, that orbital frontal cortex, where all of those peaceful capacities are developed. Um, then once the toddler is, quote, unquote, a handful, then there's likely consequences to make the child mine, which are punishments whose shame-based action further thwarts peace-oriented brain development and instead hardwires it to thrive in a threatening world. And then later, during school, the child's impulsivity gets labeled and his sense of alienation from himself, from others, from life just grows and grows. So the implications of this for society are immense. Okay, But if a pregnant mother is generally centered, I'm not talking about an occasional stressful day. I'm talking about, again, we're talking about habits, routine, predictable, consistent experience. If a pregnant mother is generally centered and peaceful, consciously cultivating joy in her life, um, her baby will develop a body and brain prepared to be peaceful, creative, and successful. So setting aside the sort of the sociopolitical realities of that for a second, I just want to point out that this is where we see science, quote-unquote science and spirit, intersecting. That's very um, popular these days to see these intersections. But truly, the hard science research from the field of neuroscience is now giving empirical credence to what many spiritual traditions have offered us through the ages, that during the time when we're being knit together in the womb, we are wired with lifelong lessons about the world and how we'll best fit into it in peace mode or in protection mode. Again, it's all about growth or protection. Marcy, I've noticed that you've presented at Faith and Science Conference and that there is quite a spiritual dimension to the work that you do. I'm wondering if there's anything more you'd like to say about the spiritual issues related to pregnancy and parenting. Well, you know, I guess we have to come back and say, well, what is, quote-unquote, spiritual? There are many people who would not consider themselves religious at all, but who have a very strong sense of spiritual connection, meaning our engagement with and our connection with the unseen aspects of human experience. I mean, this is the area that, that Einstein was working in, for goodness sake, and this is why I sometimes have to wink and smile when people make the distinction between science and spirit. Spirituality is a science, actually, but you know, not to start um, counting the angels dancing on the head of that pin, I will say that I love uh, how he pointed out, Albert Einstein pointed out, he says, do you remember how electrical currents and unseen waves were laughed at. And it's true. Mm -hmm. um, and he said the knowledge about man is still in its infancy. We know so little about what is involved in human experience. Uh, we've been able to identify and prove and, you know, do research on just such a small dimension of it. But Yes, there is a fundamental spiritual dimension. Even if we're looking at it at this most basic level, I am inviting parents, even before they conceive, to start to consider, to hold in their minds or to bring into their minds a thought of that coming child and to imagine who that child might be, to start envisioning 
what they would want for that child, what kind of noble qualities.
Child abuse and neglect have historically been almost unbelievable in their pervasiveness and severity. And statistics indicate that abuse and neglect are still staggeringly commonplace. When we consider the range of traumas human beings have suffered in childhood and in adulthood, but in childhood, at that very formative, sensitive time, from infanticides witnessed by other children in the family to incest, to threats of beatings and beatings, to lies and stories about what would happen to you if you masturbated, to child labor and child slavery and trafficking, forced marriages at very early ages, rapes, swaddling, and other confinements, separation from the mother farmed out to wet nurses away from home, traumatic witnessing of public hangings, putting the fear in children as a means of controlling them, mind control, and the staunching of creative impulses, the list goes on and on. Social historian Lloyd DeMoss says this, that all social violence, whether by war, revolution, or economic exploitation, is ultimately a consequence of child abuse, and this should not surprise us. He says the propensity to reinflict childhood trauma upon others as an adult in socially approved violence is actually far more able to explain and predict the actual outbreak of wars than the usual economic motivations, and we are likely to continue to undergo our periodic sacrificial rituals of war if the infliction of childhood trauma continues. The human race is now quite able technologically to satisfy its needs if we can live together without violence toward each other. But unless we employ our social resources toward consciously assisting the evolution of child-rearing, we will be doomed to the periodic destruction of our resources, both material and human. know that 19 out of the 50 United States still have laws on the books permitting corporal punishment in schools and there are children being beaten by their teachers in the schools. Here are some statistics by childhelp.org which compiles statistics from numerous government agencies and reporting agencies, okay? Uh, here are just a few things. First of all, 78.3% of child abuse is neglect. So this is rejection. This is being ignored. And nothing hurts, actually, more than indifference and being ignored. More than 90% of juvenile sexual abuse victims know their perpetrator in some way. So this is terrible betrayal. About 30% of abused and neglected children will later abuse their own children, continuing the horrible cycle of abuse. Abused likely to practice safe sex, which puts them at greater risk for STDs. About 80% of 21-year-olds that were abused as children 
meet criteria for at least one psychological disorder. This doesn't even get into the cash costs to society that result from child abuse. You know, about 50% of the people in prison were abused as children. Children who experience child abuse and neglect are 59% more likely to be arrested as a juvenile, 28% more likely to be arrested as an adult, and 30% more likely to commit violent crime. Children whose parents abuse alcohol and other drugs are three times more likely to be abused and more than four times more likely to be neglected than children from non-abusing families. So I just want you to see how much this topic relates to last week's topic. I do want us here on this program to be connecting the dots and to be seeing what we're up against in terms of really solving global problems. If we're going to talk about them, I want us to be talking about them holistically. So what do I mean? How does the existence of child abuse and the ideal child raising practices spoken of here by Arun Gandhi and Marcy Axness, how do they relate to last week's program on psychedelics in the treatment of addiction? Well, for one thing, all the former addicts who spoke in Trips Beyond Addiction had had severely traumatic childhoods. They'd grown up bereft of the kind of connection, attunement, and support that comes of wise love and nonviolent examples set by self-disciplined and morally developed parents. Also, those who have moved beyond their damage and the self-destructive ways of life have done so through experiences of deep connection with nature and their own nature. They have experienced belonging and a boundless love that transcends all. And this has been facilitated by expanded states of mind. It's a detox from lack of love and respect. Lack of love and respect are psycho-spiritually toxic. And this toxicity rolls from generation to generation. It pollutes with neglect, moral darkness, and being stuck in self-absorption, which is another way of saying lack of love. More on this next week. For now, enjoy the music.
And that's it for today's Living Hero Show. So glad you were here. Tune in each week, Saturday mornings from 9 to 10.30 Eastern at 91.1 in Plainfield and 91.7 in Hardwick in the beautiful north-central region of Vermont and streaming live wherever you are at wgdr.org. Podcasts of all our shows are available at livinghero.com, on iTunes, and around the web. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Leave comments on the podcast page at livinghero.com. This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Thanks for listening. Be well and see you next time. The preceding program presents the opinion of its participants and producer. 